Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Hill Harper is a pretty familiar name to those who enjoy movies and television, but now he wants to be even more familiar to Michiganders. He announced this week that he'll run as a Democrat for the open U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Debbie Stabenow. We'll talk with Harper about his decision and the ideas he'd like to carry to Washington on behalf of Michiganders. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join us today. We are almost 18 months from the next big election in this country, 2024, November, and yet every day, it seems, there's really interesting news about race of some sort or a candidate who's decided to join a race, all of a sudden we're talking about politics in the middle of the summer of 2023, a year in which we have no significant elections because 2024 is shaping up to be really interesting. That's especially true in the race for U.S. Senate. Now, early on, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin hopped into that race. This was right after current Senator Debbie Stabenow decided that she would retire after the end of her current term, which is in 2024. And while there have been other folks who have jumped in after Slotkin, including several Democrats and Republicans, she really has been projected to be the candidate to beat. That's partly because her name recognition is so high and in part because she's already raised $5.8 million and has about $3.6 million in the bank as of June 30, according to the Detroit News. But there's an unusual person who has also decided to join the race for Senate this week. Hill Harper, author and actor best known for his role in the good doctor, has announced that he will also seek to replace Debbie Stabenow in Washington. Harper is 57 and has never before run for public office, but he's running now as a progressive candidate in the race. He says the most progressive candidate in the race. His campaign is going to be focused on raising the minimum wage, making health care access universal, and alleviating income inequality. Harper was born in Iowa, but he has ties to Michigan. He owns a home here in Detroit and runs the Roasting Plant Coffee Shop on Woodward, right in downtown Detroit. A little later in the hour, we're going to talk about how lakes and other Michigan landmarks are being renamed and how state agencies are changing the stories we tell about our state. Really interesting effort going on uh, over at the Department of Natural Resources, reexamining the way we name our public spaces here in Michigan. But before we get to that subject and that conversation, we want to talk about the Senate race and talk about Hill Harper. What does he hope to accomplish if he is successful in getting the nomination and then winning the seat? And what does he believe are the biggest problems facing Michiganders and the nation? Hill Harper, really great to have you here. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Great to be on. Thank you so much. Yeah. So let's start here. Why are you running for Senate here in the state of Michigan? You know, Michigan's my home, and I've had the opportunity to, you know, really meet so many Michiganders and be a part of this great community. And I moved here originally because of the people. Um, you know, I, my 
roommate for four years uh, at Harvard Law School in the Kennedy School of Government. I was a man by the name of Brian Mathis, who's uh, a very uh, amazing family from Grand Rapids. His father was one of the uh, first African-American doctors that was a, had a prominent practice in Grand Rapids. And and he was my he was my roommate for four years. And my other roommate uh, was another Michigander named Dr. Charles Boyd, who's still here with the mm-hmm. successful plastic surgery practice. And and um, he was at Harvard Medical School at the time. And so, you know, my my ties back to Michigan date date back then. My father was actually going to live in Saginaw when we were in uh, middle school. He got a job in Saginaw. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was born in Iowa, as you said. But but you know, fast forward to 2011, 2012, there was a um, tax credit for film production here in Michigan. And I came here to do some movies. Um, uh, Rosario Dawson produced one of them. It was uh, Josh Hartnett was in it with me. And I met these amazing people. And it really, you know, people have become my best friends, people who, you know, if I get married, they'll stand up at my wedding, the, the, that type of relationship that you often actually don't make, I think, later in life. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I said to myself, you know, when I have kids, I didn't have kids then. When I have kids, I want to raise them here because I'd like them to turn out like folks here more than folks in Hollywood. And <laughs> and so um, I adopted my son December 19th, 2015, the day he was born. And I started looking for a house here. I bought a, bought a house here in Detroit. And, um, and, you know, for the last seven years, I've been, I've been here and, you know, bought a business in downtown Detroit, uh, wanted to um, create jobs for young people. I think coffee represents community. I think it's something that you bring people together through it, through coffee shops and through ideation and folks sitting there talking. And so I love that business. I I feel like it's a business you can do well and do good. Um, You could, you know, returning citizens can get a job, Mm -hmm. learning a skill that can go anywhere in the world. And so that was that emphasis. And, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about politics in any kind of way. Um, and, but right now it's a different moment, quite frankly, than seven years ago. Mm-hmm. You remember seven years ago is when our politics pretty abruptly, um, you know, and, and it certainly started before seven years ago, but it was in your face seven years ago that our politics went from, and this is something I was talking to David Axelrod about when I was sort of consulting with him and talking to him about potentially running for, for this U.S. Senate seat. And he said, Hill, um, you know, our politics are always on a constant pendulum between hope and belief and possibility and cynicism mm-hmm. and division and vitriol. And he said, you know, back when you were helping us, um, you know, in 2007 and 2008 and beyond, we were on the hope side of the ball and the change side of the ball and the possibility and the belief side. And, and then that pendulum shifted to uh, vitriol and division and cynicism. And he's like, you know, with your run, you know, you can push it back. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, you know, that's kind of the 30,000 foot view, but the much more personal micro view is that my son is seven years old. He's going into second grade. And, you know, when I was driving him to school earlier this year, he, he looked at me and he said, Hey, um, I don't want to go to school. And I said, why? He said, well, because I think they're going to kill me and then I'm going to get shot. And, they, and just, it's just started really thinking, you know, your job as a parent is to protect your kids and make them feel safe. And how much trauma uh, is he going through every, when he has to do these mass shooter trainings? Do we do that at home? Do I say, okay, jump under the cupboard. There's going to be a shooter coming in. No, it would be tra- traumatic to kids. Yet we would rather put our kids through that experience, then stand up to the NRA, stand up to the gun lobby and the billions and billions of dollars that they make and say, you know what, the life and and the mental health of a second grader is more important than the way you're trying to frame the Second Amendment. You know, and and so and good people aren't running for office. They're just not because it's such a despicable, dirty thing and so, so, so all that said yeah that, go ahead. That, that's that's why yeah no, so, that's, that's why yeah no, no I, I that's a really that's a really compelling answer to that question and and of course i ask that question of everybody who jumps into a race for political office and and you get a wide range of of responses 
Um, sure. But, but I, my next question is, what in your experience, and, and look, I mean, you've done a lot of things, uh, but, but what in your experience do you think is the most relevant for this kind of, of work? And I ask that because you haven't uh, held political office before, of course. Uh, you're not somebody who's working on the Hill or, or you know, in a, a K Street lobbying firm even. I mean, what, what is it about this work that attracts you? And what is it about your experience that Michiganders should say, hey, this is somebody who could represent us well in the U.S. Senate? Well, you know, for me, the last four months I've been traveling around the state meeting people talking about this and trying to really understand if there's in a, a way to have real positive impact. And that's, that's the whole thing. I've always lived my life with this idea that we could have positive impact and legacy and certainly making this big a life change. I'm not interested in doing it in some type of performative capacity. This is about, could I actually create, real positive impact for Michiganders and for folks in terms of representation. And so, you know, the fact that I'm not a politician for me and don't have political experience in that way is a good thing because I believe people want representation that number one, listens to them. Number two, acts in their best interest as an agent for them. And number three, has a mix of life experience that allows them to represent them in a body like the Senate. You know, this, this type of legislative body unfortunately, has evolved into a very undiverse body. You know, what's interesting is that if I'm elected to the U.S. Senate to represent Michigan, I will be the only current active dues-paying union member in the Senate. Hmm. And one of only two that has, I think, real deep Senate ties, Jackie Rosen from from, uh, Nevada, has deep union ties, but is no longer a member of her union. And that's shameful. That's shameful. We need in that hundred person body that type of representative. I'd, certainly, I'd be the only, only the third Democratic African American in the U.S. Senate, which right. again is shameful. Um, it's also I hear from Michiganders that they're very disappointed and upset that we've gone backwards. You know, for the first time in fifty-seven years, we don't have an African American represented, a Democratic representative, in, you know, in Congress in general, and so. So, so the, 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 and, and I'm not just talking about racial diversity. I'm also talking about the other types of life experience. I'd be one of very few small business owners. You know, I feel extremely strongly about the, the need to support our small businesses and economic development and communities. Small businesses are the engine that create jobs and opportunity for folks in communities, yet we don't support them. We do a very good job bailing out banks. It's no wonder many of our senators are either former bankers, investment bankers, consultants, and or lawyers. Um, so therefore, you, 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 you always fall towards hmm. your life experience. So you want at least someone to counterbalance that that actually has run or is running a small business to say, you know what, these jobs are important. And you know what, having a living wage is important because I know these workers and I know what they need. Um, we, you know, like I said, we'll bail out banks in a second, but will we help sm- starting small businesses in their first two years, their most vulnerable time, and and bail them out? But they're the ones really creating jobs and communities. So the only types of people I believe that would ha- that have that type of of insight and knowledge are folks that have had that type of life experience. I'm also a single dad. There's a whole lot of single parents out there, and I understand the challenges of what it takes. You know. Um, early childhood education, how important that is. Um, child care and the cost of child care. I'm a cancer survivor. I health care. You know, both my parents were doctors, and I'm a cancer survivor who's gone through that system in the in, in, as a patient. And then President Obama did appoint me to the president's cancer panel. So I have worked in government. We worked with the National Institute of Health, the NIH. We worked with folks from the CDC. We made recommendations to the White House about cancer policy. And then, of course, having my Harvard Law degree as well as my degree from the Kennedy School of Government, I do joke with um, Barack Obama that I'm the one with the degree in government. So, you know, <laughs> and not him, right? <laughs> and not him. So, 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 whatever. But the point being is that I think it's a mix of experiences that we want our representatives to have. But the most important thing is we want to trust and believe that they're going to fight for us. 
not you know for the actual people, Michiganders that I've talked to in union halls, talked to in farmers markets at their dining room table. I'm talking about across whether it's the Upper Peninsula, you know, up in Traverse City, across over in Grand Rapids, um, or, or or right here in Southeast. I've talked to so many, and they say the same thing. They say that they don't feel like they're represented in Congress. Now, what's interesting about this, which is great, is that they do feel that this triple blue leadership in Lansing is representing them. Um, And they do feel that the legendary Debbie Stabenow has fought for them over all these years. And, And so they feel that. But I think they want bold leadership that they can trust that will represent their best interests in Washington as a U.S. Senator. That's at least that's what I'm hearing consistently. And I hope your listeners feel the same way. Yeah, we're talking with Hill Harper, uh, an actor and author who lives here in Detroit, uh, owns a business in downtown Detroit. He announced this week that he will seek the Senate seat being vacated by Debbie Stabenow next year in the 2024 election. Uh, would love to hear from you listeners while we have this conversation. Give us a call. Let us know whether you are paying attention yet even to the Senate race for next year. July of 2023, we're talking about politics as though uh, there's an election this year. It's not even until next year. Are you focusing in on that race, though? Uh, What kind of policy we should talk about? That's something we should talk about as well. You know, the fact that we have allowed politics to extend out these races. Now, let's be really clear. This is an open seat, open seat Democratic primary and people were saying that if I'm and it's August 6, 2024, and people were saying months ago that if I'm thinking about running, I'm already late. Now, the, why has this happened? Let's let's break it down very clearly why this has happened. It's happened because incumbents and the establishment are have have more advantage the longer you can stretch out a race and the more expensive you can make it. Sure. Why? Because it, you, if you already have a funding apparatus in place and you already have a, a, a whole organization in place uh, and here's the sad part and you in certain ways suppress turnout incumbents tend to win yeah. when you know, there's and, no and question. Look, the money, the Go money ahead. angle is, is the thing that, that really has just absolutely perturbed our politics. I mean, they, they are very different than they were even a decade ago. Let, let's talk about the money in this race. As I said, Alyssa Slotkin, who's a member of Congress from Michigan and running for the seat on the Democratic side as well, has already raised $5.8 million. This is a lot of money uh, for, again, uh, almost 18 months before the election. Uh, what role do you feel money will play? Also, uh, draw some distinctions between yourself and uh, Alyssa Slotkin, somebody who has an awful lot of politics and government experience. Well, well, well first, I'll say that, again, it's so far in, in advance of the primary that I think it's even um, somewhat problematic and disrespectful to, pe- to to the other candidates, as well as the people who may get into this to to sort of focus in on it as a binary uh, type of situation to focus in on one specific candidate. You know, I have respect for any person who raises their hand to serve, you know, because because this isn't easy. I mean, I mean, I just launched yesterday and before I when I was headed from the first launch event in Detroit to the second one in Pontiac, the NRSC had already put out a lying ad about me that saying in a quote that, you know, I it just lied. And I was like, wow, this, I mean, you know, I just launched and they're already lying about me in an ad that they're paying to push out. And so, so I, I don't think at this point we need to be talking about other candidates and this, I just want to let people get to know me okay, to be quite cool. honest, because I don't want to fall into the same traps that I think in, in the same tropes that actually have marred our politics. That's the type of thing that marred our politics from the, from the, from the get-go. So, so, so let me say this. The money is 
is super important, right? And so, but my campaign is going to approach it very differently. We're, we're a grassroots campaign. We're going to have to rely on the small dollar donor who sets up, you know, the $5 recurring, <laughs> you know, donation. It's, we've seen it happen before. You know, obviously, President Obama did it extremely well in 2007, and other candidates have followed that model. But, you know, folks are going to have to go to my website, you know, hillharper.com, and put in $2. Well, how much? It's not going to be the big donor class. The other piece is that if I am elected, Senator, I will will fight to, number one, restrict the time that candidates can actually be candidates and run. Um, Because, again, the longer you extend it out, the fewer the people. Well, that's bumping up against some First Amendment protections, isn't it? Well, not not at all. If you, if, you know, there are rules about declaring a candidacy with the mm-hmm. Federal Election Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, listen, you, what I'm talking about is not about talking about issues and talking about what you'd want to do to represent people. I'm talking about These when and raising how money you, and, right. I'm raising money and how you actually file what how long you have to actually raise money. Also, spending limits in terms of campaigns. That's critical. Right. It should not be. And also dark money. You know, also Citizens United. We could get into all of these things that can help actually democratize the process. You know, this is an open seat. Um, you know, th- without question, the control of the Senate is going to run through Michigan, and it has to stay in Democratic hands. Mm-hmm. It has to. A Democrat has to win this seat. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, we're going to we, we need to take a quick break, uh, okay. and when we come back, we're going to uh, continue talking with Hill Harper about his campaign for Senate. We're going to get to some phone calls as well. Some folks here in Detroit have some questions for him as well. If you want to join them, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social, go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. For news that impacts your community. Music that moves your soul. And conversations that matter. W. D. E. T. Detroit's NPR station. Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've joined us. We've got Hill Harper with us. He's an actor and an author, of course, also owner of a small business in downtown Detroit. He's been living here in Detroit for several years and announced this week that he will challenge for the U.S. Senate seat that's being vacated by uh, Debbie Stabenow next year. We would love to hear from you as well while we have this conversation with Hill about uh, his experience and the things that he would do if he is elected to the U.S. Senate. Also, uh, give us a call. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can go to Twitter as well and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start today with Mo in Detroit. Mo, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, and thank you, uh, Mr. Harper, for being on. You know, my, my question is, you know, we're just coming off of still four years of an inexperienced uh, actor and game show host being the president. That was an absolute disaster for Michigan and the rest of the country. And I'm just curious why, uh, Mr. Harper, you, you think that we should uh, elect you, who also has absolutely no experience in politics and no, um, you know, no history of showing that you understand the complex terms and, and issues that a senator would face. Do you know about financial services? Do you know what an ESG is? Do you know the U.S. stance on Syria? Would you be a for or against our current strategy? Do you know about uh, issues of housing and the uh, LTV yeah. ratio. Like, do you know these things? Mo, Mo, it's a great question. I'm glad you called. Uh, Hill, go ahead and answer. Thanks so much, Mo. Yeah, I, I do, actually. You know, the, the, the thing about living your life and being an activist and being appointed by President Obama and also being a small business owner and also just living as a, as, as a, as a concerned human who, who wants to try to solve problems, um, 
you know, through my activism, through the work I've done. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, please go on to hillharbor.com, check out my background. You know, I'll put my resume uh, and my history up against anybody, quite frankly. You know, I think, I think he's asking. I think, some... I think Minnie Racker did a really good job with uh, an article that she wrote for Time. It goes into some of that stuff. And I think he's asking some really technical questions, though, about service in the U.S. Senate. The Senate is, yeah. and I'm saying this as someone who worked in Washington as a journalist for, for a long time, the Senate is probably the most complicated place <laughs> to, to yeah. be in government. And, and uh, I mean, to be very clear, it's a legislative body right. that is charged with, um, you know, uh, putting forth and approving and or submitting uh, uh, laws that we're going to be governed by. And, and a lot of those laws have to do with uh, money that's distributed uh, and people's money. And people want to be represented and they want people to be, they certainly want their representatives to be good fiduciaries of their money. And, and, and right now, unfortunately, Washington is broken from the standpoint that the vast majority of our senators don't actually write their legislation. And maybe people will be surprised to hear that, but it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Um, Lobbyists, uh, so-called consultants, big donors and others hand legislation to, you know, staff. Staff takes paragraphs and things, sometimes the whole thing, unedited, and uh, and it's submitted. Um, the, the, The idea that your senator is sitting there like times of old, uh, writing that legislation. And listen, I, you know, I've so how would that be different? Yeah. How would that be different for, uh, for in me, a Hill Harper Senate? I am not. How would it be very different is that, you know, I am, I, I owe no favors. I don't owe favors to the establishment. I don't owe favors to any lobbyist body or any big donors, uh, certainly be an independent voice. Now, Mo pointed out something that I think that we definitely should address because certainly, um, you know, guilt by association. You know, I think if you look at my history uh, and you look at my politics, I am very, very different than um, the 45th president of the United States. And, and um, you know, and folks could could figure that out. You know, the, the question, though, is for me, um, progressives and folks, I think, that lead with really good, smart ideas have been out-energied by that side of the ball, mm. um, been outworked. And I'm willing, and my life's history shows that I will, I will fight and work extremely hard um, to put forth and represent the values of the Michigander in this office. And I think that other actors have actually done well in their representation. I mean, we can, you know, I, I was elected to the national board of my union the same board table that Ronald Reagan sat sat around when he was um, a part of that body. And, uh, you know, we look at uh, Zelensky. Uh, he's doing OK uh, over in Ukraine. So 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 I think actors uh, can can be can can do well uh, in leadership positions. It's more about the person. And it's like I said, it's more about a mix of their life experience and what they bring to the table. Certainly, you know, if we if, if we want to get real technical, like Mo, we we can talk about you know what classes I took at Harvard Law School <laughs> and what my grades were. I graduated cum laude, so you know there were people I went to Harvard Law School with that graduated thank you laude. I graduated actually <laughs> cum laude. So, so you'll probably you know, learn a couple also, things about government there and at the, the Kennedy School and, for as well sure, as right? my yeah. master's at the <laughs> right. Kennedy School of Government. So I I hope that I learned those things as well. Yeah. So, I want to I get, get to a couple more callers here. Yeah. Mo, I really do appreciate the call and and the provocative question, uh, Glenn. Thank you, Mo. I hope I hope you learn and do some research about me, and hopefully you'll be somebody who who looks at me with a with uh, you know just to op- open eyes. Yeah, uh, uh, Glenn in LaSalle, you're up next. What's on your mind? So, uh, Stephen, thank you for uh, taking my call, and I really appreciate uh, Mr. Harper being on the radio. I'd like to drill down in uh, your thinking, Mr. Harper, and your ideas associated with a government, uh, specifically in addressing the issue that you emotionally brought up about your son afraid to go to school. Mm. Um, that's, that is a, just a gigantic tragedy and a huge problem. 
And the, the problem is that we have the Second Amendment and that we have the Supreme Court um, supporting the Second Amendment. Uh, and so I want to know, what is your thinking? What are your ideas about what can possibly be done and pass as far as laws are concerned in terms of protecting children in school from yeah. guns? Great question, Glenn. Great. I love that you called. Uh, he'll go ahead. Glenn, great question. So, so first of all, it's a, it's a couple different things, and let me try to break it down as, as fast as I can because I know we don't have a lot of time. Number one, we have to stop allowing other, other people who clearly have um, very slanted motivations about how we allow them to define what the debate is. Um, Quite frankly, to me, getting pulled into a debate about the Second Amendment um, is not the way to go. You know, there are weapons that we need to classify not as guns, but as weapons of mass murder. And we must ban weapons of mass murder, and we must call them that. You know, the the other the, the, the far right is very good with coming up with terms that sound good, but it aren't good for anybody like right to work or, uh, uh, you know, Citizens United, things like that. Right. And, and, and so we've allowed them to dictate to us that this is a Second Amendment issue. It's not a Second Amendment issue if, unless you get pulled into it. Now, if we're going to get pulled into the Second Amendment, let's do that real quick. Um, uh, you know, obviously I took, you know, took constitutional law in law school. We can talk about the second amendment. It's, second amendment is the, o- the, the only place in the entire, uh, uh, uh constitution where, where we see the word regulation, mm-hmm. well-regulated militia. So number one, that's one thing. And we certainly qualify, um, even other amendments that don't have the word regulation in it. As an example, first amendment, you know, uh, uh, defamation slander, libel, these types of things, they basically is regulating that speech. It's not just free speech saying you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. It's, it, you know, so the idea that we've allowed the NRA and, and the gun lobby and the money to say that there is zero qualifications for anything in the Second Amendment, even though it's the one place where, where regulation actually, the word actually appears, the only place, is crazy because we've allowed them to dictate the terms. We've allowed them to dictate what it is. And so for me, it's about defining what these are. When an arm or in this term, a gun, when they wrote that, the Second Amendment, it was literally a musket that you had to load and it took you like three minutes to load. And so therefore, my father used to take me skeet shooting. You know, I'm I don't want to touch anybody's gun. I don't want to, your rifle, your shotgun, have that. But if it is a high mag load weapon that can kill more people in 15 seconds in a crowded room, then it's a weapon of mass murder. And therefore, it should not be allowed. So, I I mean, I I think a lot of people would agree with that kind of distinction, and especially people, you know, listening to this show, and and, and I would count myself in that category as well. The problem is that in order to get anything done, you've got to convince people who don't see it that way uh, to to, to embrace that that approach. That approach, and that's where it's it breaks down every time in in Congress. It's and and here in Michigan for forty years, it was impossible to pass any kind of gun regulation. We just got really the first uh, minor steps uh, in that direction in my lifetime here uh, because we've got because of the because of the triple leadership. So outside of that circumstance where you have this kind of majority, how how would you approach? Uh, getting these kind of things done, making making you, a change. You, you you have to put together a people-led movement and coalition, uh, and the level of activity around it has to be and has to match the level of activity that the gun lobby and the NRA. Now, the difference is, is that they have literally billions of dollars to pour into, to pour into the, the lobbying effort. But we have people and we have people that really care about this issue. And if we can organize them in a way that makes sense, that is strong, we can do that together. We have to do it together. It it only happens in in collaboration with each other and creating a real movement around issues. We've seen this. We've seen movements around issues work historically. 
We can look at the civil rights movement. We can look at um, the pride movement. We can look at so many very strong movements that took real organizing, real energy. And that's not to say that people haven't been fighting it and working, mm-hmm. working on this issue. And I think we're getting close to that place. I, I really do. And I think that, you know, obviously sending folks that will, will that will truly fight around these issues, because, because remember, issues like this are inextricably linked with other issues. They're inextricably linked with issues around uh, policing and crime. They're inextricably linked around mass incarceration. They're inextricably linked around education and, you know, uh, and the quality of education and et cetera. You know, in Michigan right now is 41st in teacher pay. Right now we're 49th in growth. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there, there are many different issues that, that start to get inextricably linked because um, all of these things affect all of us and affect each other. And certainly as a parent, you know, my son's entering second grade. And um, there was no question that as you think about the school, you think about where, and there he is yelling in the background, uh, where um, he's going to school. He spends more time in that school than he does at home, really, except for sleeping time. So, so that's so critical for our young people. And it's so critical for every, every, every single citizen. And I believe that there is a movement, if we can organize it properly, that can change this issue in these next few years. Okay, uh, Hill Harper, it was really great to have you here. I'm going to make you promise before you get off the phone that you will come back and talk with our listeners again as we get deeper into this race. But I really appreciate the time you gave us uh, today. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. When we come back, we are going to continue discussing what it means to change names of places in Michigan. We're going to talk about uh, places in Michigan that are carrying slurs that the Department of Natural Resources has decided to take a real look at and think about whether we might name them in a different way. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for joining. Nations constantly tell stories about themselves. And one way they do that is by labeling things. Public spaces like parks, schools, and lakes all describe who we are to ourselves by the titles that we give them. In Michigan and across the country, a number of things we honor and glorify are related to people and things that have been pretty nasty, or that carry hateful messages in and of themselves. The most obvious examples, of course, are those of Confederate statues, glorifying people who endorsed and abetted slavery. But there are also examples of titles that are simply offensive. In November 2021, Deb Holland, United States Secretary of the Interior, officially declared the word squaw to be a derogatory term against Native American women. And she created a task force to formally begin removing it from federal use. That slur, which was scattered across many Michigan lakes, has now been removed from more than 30 Michigan landmarks. And recently, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources decided to rename a boat launch in Oakland County to Paint Lake. So why is this happening now? What are the consequences of changing the titles of our public spaces to things that are more positive or at least less offensive? And what is the state doing to try to create more inclusive, positive environments for everyone? To discuss these things, we've got two great guests with us. Ron Olson is the chief of the Parks and Recreation Division of the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. Ron, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Thank you, Stephen, for having me on. Also with us is Sierra Clark, a former Indigenous Affairs reporter at the Traverse City Record Eagle. She's now a reporting specialist for Miigwech, Inc., and is Anishinaabe, (laughs) I think I got that right, from the Grand Traverse Bay area. Sierra, welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Annie, thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron, I'm going to start with you. Uh, talk about why the Michigan Department of Natural Resources decided to change the Oakland County Lake name. Well, we, uh, uh, as you described, there has been a, uh, a larger uh, uh, process from the federal level, and we adopted uh, what they were doing to examine the all of the properties that we have, wildlife areas, forests, parks, uh, boating access sites, and the like, to determine uh, which of them would be fit in the category of being uh, offensive, if you will. And one of the things that uh, some people don't know is lake names uh, are set up and established by the U.S. Geological Survey, and they also embarked upon the same uh, uh, idea or the same concept of assessing names um, to determine which names of lakes were uh, inappropriate and needed to be changed. Well, one of those was the lake in Oakland County that uh, was named Squaw Lake, and consequently the boat launch. Usually we name boat launches associated with the name of the lake, and that uh, hit our list at the same time it hit their list and the name of the lake was identified to be changed to paint lake and so consequently uh in partnership with them uh we uh took an affirmative step in our rulemaking to develop what we call a land use order which has been uh in the process and that'll be finalized in a week here uh, through an order that will be signed, and then that name will be officially changed to the Paint Lake Boating Access Site. So, But, by the way, we did analyze uh, all the other uh, names and entities that we have across that, but this was one definitely that uh, jumped out because uh, of the word squaw. Yeah. So, um, Sierra, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You and I have talked in the past about the many ways in which the state of Michigan and and other jurisdictions really have a lot of work to do um, repairing damage that has been done to native nations. I want to go back first uh, to to get the the name of the nation, the first nation that that you belong to, right? Uh, Anishinaabe, uh, which is uh, a group of of cultures and people that is kind of collected here in the in the Great Lakes. But I want to get your reaction to what Ron Olson is talking about and and a sense of how how much repair can be done by renaming these things. Yeah, so I am a Nishinaabe, which is of the Three Fires Confederacy um, that includes the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi nations. Um, I'm more particularly from the Grand Traverse Band of Odawa and Ojibwe uh, in Traverse City. Um, so yeah, kind of going off of that, um, you know, this this word is um, derived from the Algonquin language of the word Esquaw. Um, loosely translating to women, young girl, but as we've seen throughout history, um, with many native um, names and words, it was it was stolen and then it was perverted, um, and it, it turned into a, a really broad racial slur, uh, a caricature uh, that removed individual identity and dignity from uh, women in, of Native American heritage. Mm -hmm. So the, the earliest um, uses of the word, um, historians do um, agree that it was not used in a derogatory way, um, but we look at throughout history on the views of Native people, and it's always been in the white opinion of Natives being savages and heathens, and this includes the S word describing Native women. Um, you know, violence against Native American women is rooted in history, and it persists through the continued portrayal of us uh, with the example of the use of these slur names in places. So, um, you know, it is it is a first step. I, I have to agree it is a first step um, in making and change, but it's, it's one of many steps that need to be made. Yeah. So I, I need to admit that I did not know that this was an offensive term until I feel like it was maybe a year or so ago that one of the producers here on 
the program told me that uh, this was an offensive name. Uh, and that reminds me that there are there are blind spots that I think a lot of people walk around with uh, who are not part of First Nations or, or, or Native communities. Uh, and we don't think about what those words mean. We grow up with them because they're familiar and they're used by, by the people who teach us, uh, you know, about, about our places and, and our state. Um, but Sierra, it, it seems like that's a difficulty as well, getting people to yeah. understand, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's because society looks past us and um, continues to put the opinion of Native peoples, especially Native women's, um, you know, at the very, very bottom. Um, it's never been appropriate, um, but white hands have always dictated um, for us and spoken for us. Um, you know, uh, Native American bodies, especially Native women in two-spirit, are used how white America sees fit. So what has been lost in this discussion um, about renaming places um, is the genocide that these places have seen. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the genocide of burned settlements and the body counts of my ancestors, but the genocide of forced assimilation and the stamping out of ceremonies and traditions and the elimination of our languages. Specifically speaking here in Michigan, Anishinaabe Moen, you know, before um, these places uh, were were named with the, the S word, they had Anishinaabe names that were eradicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron, give me a sense of how the DNR is working with indigenous people and indigenous nations to talk about the way that we not only name things, but also uh, the ownership of, of land and the, the, the issues there and, and all of the things that, I, that we kind of have to go back and rethink or redo. Well, the, the DNR has, Department of Natural Resources, does have a staff member who is a uh, tribal liaison, and there, uh, uh, and there is a linkage between that person and the tribal leadership. And, um, and then there are other uh, times when certain things, like, for example, uh, in the Thumb area, we manage uh, the Petroglyphs uh, State Park, if you will, and it's a remnant of petroglyphs, and we work very closely with our history division and the tribes on that particular focused area because it does have a lot of historical and cultural significance on a very focused basis. But and uh, obviously, uh, in this past year and a couple of years, there's been tribal negotiations on the agreement between the tribes and the state of Michigan, uh, and that's that has gone on for quite some time, and there's an agreement that's pending, and I believe it's in some litigation right now. So there isn't a lot of act, active engagement uh, from not only the tribal uh, treaty agreements and updating them, as well as ongoing uh, engagement, you know, such as the, what, you know, the petroglyphs and other kinds of specific things that we work with that do that do impact the um, and come up against tribal things. Plus, we also have a lot of uh, very very precise archaeological programs, and as we do uh, projects and different things, we're very we spend a lot of time making sure that that if there is any evidence of uh, archaeological uh, historical. Uh, Native American settlements or whatnot, that those are very highly respected and, and and considered in all of our design work. So, you know, is it perfect? Probably not, but it, the process, those are some of the process pieces we have in place. Yeah, uh, Sierra, we've only got about a minute and a half left, but I want to give you a chance. I, I started the segment uh, talking about storytelling and the way that we tell our own stories. It seems to me that, that one of the answers here to the lack of understanding and knowledge about these things is journalism and uh, having more journalists be able to tell this story from the standpoint of uh, members of First Nations. And and I wanted to give you a chance just to talk about the importance of the kind of work that you do trying to educate the rest of us. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's really important to, um, to listen to Native peoples and get their perspective. Um, you know, when you have stories written by um, hands of those who don't belong to a, a culture or the nation, um, that, that perspective isn't going to be 100%. Um, and and my, my, myself, um, I speak um, for myself. I'm not speaking for the entire nation of sure. Anishinaabe. I'm just speaking as an Odawa woman from northern Michigan. Um, my experiences of what I've um, learned from my elders and my community and um, you know, researched as a, a an, an amateur researcher um, through journalism, but um, yeah, it's 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 really important to to really um, put the the voices of native peoples um, on the forefront when it, we're discussing these kinds of issues. Um, and I, I do just want to say that. Um, that this um, is not really anything new. Mm -hmm. um, this uh, this name change is just following um, what has been going on since the 60s and 70s um, with the Interior Department. Um, they have replaced um, place names that contained slurs for Black and Japanese people. Sure. Um, and it's just a continuation of changing these outdated terms that are no longer appropriate. Yeah. Um, so as a Native woman, um, I just want to say that our voices and our opinions matter. Yes, of course they do. Uh, Sierra Clark, it's always great to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. And Ron Olson of the DNR, great to have you here as well. Yes, sir. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about Detroit's proposed land value tax, which tries to incentivize people to build on vacant land that they own also promises to change the tax structure a little for those of us who are Detroit taxpayers. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.